Eric Little is a Scottish track star whose speed earned him the nickname the Flying Scotsman. And some of you may have even seen the film that was made in 1981 about him. It's called Chariots of Fire. Pretty popular movie. Even if you haven't seen it, uh, quite a number of us might actually be familiar with his story. You see, what Eric Little was most well known for was his faith in God, which resulted in a decision in his life that he was going to dedicate every Sunday entirely to the Lord. He just wanted Sunday to be about worshiping God and being with him. So he cut out a lot of other activities on those days, including sports, like running track. So when the 1924 Olympics came around, Eric Little shocked the world when he refused to run the 100-meter race, which was his best event, because it was on a Sunday. In fact, he, his, his whole homeland was pretty upset with him. Scotland, they, they couldn't understand what he was doing. He was their best shot at finally winning a gold medal in that race. But he demonstrated his love for God over sports by remaining true to his convictions. Now, there were other events that he ran in those Olympics, but none of them were as legendary as when he ran the 400-meter race. Nobody thought that Eric Little was going to even get a medal in that race. Well, not only did he get a medal, he won the gold medal. And not only did he win the gold medal, he also set a world record in that race for the time that he set. Well, then all of a sudden, everybody loved Eric Little again. He was uh, quite a character. One of the things a lot of people knew about him was that he had what uh, we could describe as an unconventional way of running. One biographer described it, his running style as arms flailing like windmills and, and, and knees pumping high. And he said as he approached the finish line, he would throw his head back and open his mouth wide. One news outlet described it by saying he was probably the ugliest runner who ever won an Olympic championship. And look, a lot of people know these things about Eric Little's story. Fewer people know what came next for him. See, not long after the Olympics, Eric Little shocked the world again by giving up a career in running. He decided to lay all of that aside to instead become a missionary in China. That's exactly what he did. And during his time in China, war broke out between China and Japan, and there were days where there'd be carnage all around him. You could hear gunshots being fired in the background, but he was always trying to find people he could share the love of Christ with. That was the type of person Eric Little was. Then one day, with some other foreigners, he was sent to a Japanese internment camp. And it was in that place that a lot of people turned to despair and selfishness and hopelessness. But Eric Little was always there to try and share the truth with the other prisoners about God's love for them. He taught his fellow prisoners what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. We're supposed to love and pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. That included the Japanese soldiers holding them there. During his time in the camp, he gave up his prized running shoes to one of the prisoners whose shoes had worn out. Once there was supposed to be a prisoner exchange, and he was actually set to be released, but he gave up his spot to a pregnant woman instead. And eventually Eric Little died in that internment camp. And at a memorial service for him, this is what one of his friends said. He said, Eric was literally God-controlled in his thoughts, judgments, actions, words, to an extent I have never seen surpassed and rarely seen equaled. Every morning he rose early to pray and read the Bible in silence, talking and listening to God, pondering the day ahead and often smiling 
as if at a private joke. And the reason I wanted to share this story with you this morning is because every time I read Eric Little's story, it, uh, it inspires me. His example challenges me to consider how much I would be willing to give up for God in my life and how strongly I will stand on my convictions for him. And I'm sure that all of us have people in our lives who inspire us, family, friends, people whose actions and words impact us and cause us to consider how we want to live our lives. Certain individuals inspire us to greater things in this life. And this morning, we are going to talk about an individual. There's no one as great as this individual we are going to talk about together today. He is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and the one who desires to draw us near to him. And I have found in my life that the more that I experience God's goodness, the more I learn about his greatness in the Bible, the more that I am challenged to live for him, and the more I am inspired to worship him. I have a feeling that's true for a lot of you, too. It was true for the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see that together this morning as we turn to Romans chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Romans chapter 11. If you'd like to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you, you can turn to page, I believe it's 919. 919, Romans chapter 11. Last week, we saw at the beginning of this chapter in the book of Romans that there is a difference between being in the family of God and just hanging around the family of God. And this week, today, we're going to see that there are some great truths for those who are in the family. My prayers will see how we should respond to these things. But before we look there together, I just want to share something with you. We've been in Romans for a number of months now as a church. I think we've gone through a lot of great things together in this book. If you've been with us the whole time, you may have noticed something. That's that Romans chapters 1 through 11, uh, they're often, for good reason, considered to be the very deep teachings in the book of Romans. Before Paul moves on to some very practical matters of Christian living. We're going to see that starting next week in chapter 12. And it's true, these, these have been deep waters of biblical truth that we have been wading through together, believers. I hope that you've been blessed by it. And I want to encourage you, church, when we go through deep things like this, that and the Bible says in Psalm chapter 1 that we should desire to be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. And to that end, I want to encourage you, we should desire that our faith would dig deep down into those waters. And the goal is that we would be mature believers, strong in our faith, confident in salvation, and prepared to live for the Lord. And as we come to the close of Romans chapter 11, my prayer is that we will be inspired to respond the same way that the Apostle Paul did when he came to the end of so many of these truths. So let's look together. Romans 11, verse 25. Paul says this, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's just pause here for just 
just a minute. Paul wants us to understand that God's got a plan for Israel. Just remember that, believers. God's still got a plan for Israel. Even though they've hardened their hearts, so many of them, even though they've rejected the Messiah who came to them, God's not finished with them. I mean, he, he hasn't forgotten his promises to them. His love for them hasn't faded away. And, and their disobedience didn't throw a wrench in God's plan. Now, from before time began, God knew all the ways that Israel was going to fail. He knew that it was going to lead to this time where his grace is being poured out to the Gentiles, the time that we live in right now. But you see, we're being told now that this, this hardness of heart among them, this unbelief, it's, it's not going to last forever. It's only until the full number of Gentiles has come in. You see, God has promised that a time is coming when Israel will largely turn to him in faith. In fact, God gives us glimpses of what this is going to look like all throughout Scripture. I'll just share a couple examples with you. Revelation chapter 7 tells us that during that great and terrible time of the tribulation, that 144,000 Jews will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Surely others will follow. And then the day is going to come that's described in Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. It says this, says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. That prophecy is talking about the fact that the day will come when the Jews, when Israel sees Jesus Christ, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn in repentance and faith. But okay, this should lead us to ask the question, why, why is this important for us to see? Why was Paul so passionate that we, we Gentiles, we wouldn't be ignorant of these things? Well, first he says that it's so we wouldn't be conceited, full of ourselves, wise in our own eyes. And second, this is important because this, this that we're reading here, this is about God's word. This is about his promises. God's telling us that he hasn't given up on Israel. He still wants to pour out his grace towards them. And if his word and his promises to them still stands, then can't we trust his promises towards us, believers? Can't we trust God too? Just as he continues to care for wayward Israel, how much more will he care for those of us who have become his children by faith in Jesus Christ? So believers, when God promises in Scripture to meet all of our needs in Philippians chapter 4, when he promises to bring us comfort in trouble, when he promises never to leave us nor forsake us, to never lose his good grip on us, and to bring us into his presence when this life ends, we can trust him. Because God is going to fulfill his promises. He's going to fulfill them to Israel. He's going to fulfill them to us. You see, there's no one, no one who is like our God. There's no one who is as great as he is. And his greatness doesn't end there. Look at verse 28. Paul says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God 
have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. In their opposition to the gospel, many of the Jews have become enemies of the gospel. That once described the Apostle Paul, by the way, in case you didn't know Paul's story. See, there was a time in Paul's life where he was a persecutor of Christians. Oh, he hated the gospel. He hated Christians. He hunted them down. He tossed them in prison. He approved the murder of the believer named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was such a well-known enemy of the church that when Paul finally gave his life to Jesus Christ, none of the other Christians wanted to be around him. Acts chapter 9 tells us that they, well, they were scared of him. Is this real, Paul, being a Christian now? Is it a trap? They didn't know what to think. Now, they didn't want to be around him. They didn't believe he was really a follower of Jesus. And then later on, as Paul started sharing the gospel, many of his chief opponents were Jews. Yet, do you see how God still loves them? Do you see that as we're reading this? Even the ones who push him away. Even the ones who reject the Savior, who fail to understand the covenants, the law, the promises that God gave them, he loves them. Remember that it was as Jesus hung on the cross, dying, it was as the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers mocked him that Jesus lifted up his voice and said, Father, forgive them. He loves them. And just as God showed great mercy in forgiving and saving the persecutor of Christians named Paul, God wants to show mercy to all these unbelieving Jews if only they will come to Jesus Christ in faith. He loves them. And one day, the Jews will look on their Savior, whom they have pierced. The hardening of the nation will end. Many of them will come to him in faith. They'll be forgiven by God and they'll be saved. They will step into God's mercy. See, understand this about God. God is merciful. More than we can ever understand. His mercy, it's incredible. It's, it's hard to fathom that we should be forgiven of all our sins, all the terrible things that we've done, and pardoned from the penalty of hell. Because it's not just the Jews who can step into God's mercy, so can we. Paul says, God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Jew and Gentile alike, we all have hearts that are drawn towards sin and disobedience, but in his love, God desires to draw all people to himself so that we could receive his mercy. Now remember what mercy is. Mercy is when we do not get what we do deserve. Okay, And in his mercy, God is offering the forgiveness of sins and a pardon from the penalty of hell that we deserve. That's what God's offering us to everyone who comes to Jesus Christ in faith. That's the God who we serve, Christians. The God of all mercy and grace who wants to show his mercy and grace to all. And the ones who have received it, those of us who have stepped into that mercy and grace, we have so much to praise God for. That he would save us from an eternity in hell separated from him. That he would adopt us 
into his family. Forgive us of all our selfish deeds, that he would make us citizens of heaven, that he would give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. If anyone has a reason to rejoice in this life, Christians, it's us. So no wonder why that's exactly what Paul does next. Look at verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Some of your Bibles might have a heading above those verses right there that says doxology. That's exactly what this is. A doxology is a, a short hymn and song of praise to God. That's what a doxology is. Uh, let me give you an example. There's short hymn, very similar. It's referred to as a doxology. It's sung in churches today, although I don't think we could necessarily call it modern. It was written in the 1600s, but it still might sound familiar to many of us. So one doxology is still sung today. It goes this way. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now listen to Paul's song. After talking about God's faithfulness, God's immense grace and mercy to Israel and to the world, Paul immediately says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. How true. God's knowledge, his wisdom, his planning, his purposes too deep for us to fully comprehend. We'll never be able to immerse ourselves in a full understanding of his ways. These things are too deep for us to fully explore. I was trying to wrap my head around that truth this week. How can we even try and understand the true depth of God's wisdom and knowledge? The deepest point on earth is a place in the ocean that's called the Challenger Deep. Some of you may have heard of Challenger Deep. Uh, Challenger Deep lies more than 36,000 feet below the surface of the water. That's almost seven miles. And to put that in perspective for all of us, if you put Mount Everest at the very bottom of Challenger Deep, uh, the top of the mountain would be covered by about a mile of water. That's how deep it is. Now, a lot of people, have, of course, wanted to go to the bottom of Challenger Deep. They want to explore it. So they've built special submarines so they can do that. A number of people have gone all the way to the bottom because they're curious. What, what can survive down there? What does live down there? What's it like? And, and there's still a lot of unknowns about Challenger Deep. Yet we know far more about what lies in the depths of Challenger Deep than we can know and comprehend the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge, the greatness of his plans and purposes. Now, those, uh, those are too deep to know, but they're deep enough to praise. Paul said, who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counsel? I mean, who are we to give counsel to God? Although, let's be honest, 
Sometimes we try to do that, don't we? If you ever found yourself there where you're trying to explain to God the complexities of your situation, advise him on what he should do in order to help you out. Maybe instead, we should humbly bring our requests to him, and then we should fall before him and humbly accept whatever his plan is going to be. Paul goes on, he says, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Look, whatever we give to God, our time, resources, energy, all these things, these belong to him in the first place. All things belong to him. Rather than boast about what we give him, we should praise him that he would give us anything at all. So in the end, the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge, they're, they're too great to fathom. Then we can't counsel him, though we might try. We can't give anything to meet any of his needs. He doesn't have any needs, and everything belongs to him anyways. So in the end, we simply need to join with the Apostle Paul and say, to God be the glory forever. Amen. Why do we sing in church? Why do we praise God like Paul? It can't simply be because of tradition. That can't be the reason. That'd be a poor reason for us to praise God. A pastor once said that theology, our belief about God, and doxology, our worship of God, should never be separated. He said, there can be no doxology without theology, and there should be no theology without doxology. In other words, how can we worship God if we don't know who he is? And how can we learn about who he is and not fall on our knees and worship him? Church, we can't sing about God's goodness unless we have learned it. We can't sing about his wisdom until we've been impacted by it. We can't sing about his grace until we've been immersed in it. And then once we have, like Paul, we shouldn't be able to help but break out in praise. That should lead us to sing and to sing and to sing some more. We're going to. Because worship, that's the right response. One summer I was working for a brief time at a camp in Colorado, and, and we took a large group of students on a hike up a mountainside. And we finally got to the place where we were going. We were all tired. We sat down. And we looked down. There's this sweeping, beautiful view of this, this valley and all these trees and rolling hills in the distance. And, and, and we had this breathtaking view, and as we looked out at all these things, one of, the, one of the camp counselors took a megaphone and read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. As we looked out at this awe-inspiring view of the things that God had created. And let me tell you something. The reading of God's word, it led to praise. The way that it always should. See, here's the thing this morning, church. The truth that I want us to understand, the proper response to the greatness and goodness of God is to worship God. That's the proper response. That's why we sing. That's why we worship God. If we see God's goodness in our life and in his word, we should worship him. There are many ways we can worship God. We can worship him through prayer, through his word, through serving one another. This morning, we're going to sing. And believer, if you're here and you have not been inspired by the greatness of God in your life or in his word, then I'm going to encourage you, you need to do a heart check. 
And during this time when we go to the Lord and sing, you need to pray that God would wake you up to who He is and how great He is. But if you're like Paul and you're ready to shout the Lord's praises, that's what we're about to do together. And before we do, if you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, you've never given your life to Him, you don't know that you know that you know when this life is over, you're going to be with Him for all eternity. If that's where you are, friend, please do not leave the way that you came in. Understand that God wants to forgive you of all your sins and to rescue you from the penalty of hell. He's been waiting your whole life for you to step into his grace and mercy. The question is, will you give your life to him? The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So friend, understand that during any point this morning, as we sing praises to God, because we're going to sing for a little while, I want you to know that you can come. I'll be right here in the front, on this front row. I want you to know you can come and you can sit with me. We can talk together. Bring your questions. We can pray together. If you're thinking and you're in the back, well, that's a long walk. Don't let the walk keep you from coming to the front. But you know what? We love you. I don't want anything to hinder you from finally stepping into God's mercy and grace that he has long had for you. So I'm going to ask Pastor Brandon to be in the back, too. We're going to make sure that we're available to you. Don't leave the way that you came in here. If you've never received salvation, you can do that before you leave. You will give your life to Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have, Let's get ready to praise the Lord in song together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there's no mistake in it. You are the greatest individual. There is no one like you. You keep your word to your people. Your promises will never fail. Your mercy is astounding. Your plans and purposes, the depths of your wisdom and knowledge, will never be able to fully understand. And all that should remind us that you're worthy of our praise. So, fathers, we get ready to praise you right now. As we get ready to rejoice in your greatness and in your goodness, I pray that this would be a time where you are lifted up. And if there's anyone here who's never given their life to Jesus Christ, let this be the day when they step into your mercy. Let this be the day where they receive that forgiveness that you're offering, a pardon from the penalty of hell. And those of us who have received it, I pray we would not be able to contain our joy as we continue to worship you now by singing your praises. Father, we love you. But you prove day in and day out that you love us more, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.